0: be those that you want spoken the words that we hear be those you want to be heard so that we may present our bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to you Amen So this evening we're carrying on in our series on worship and looking at all that that word might be not just sung worship as Roland said But this evening, particularly whole life worship and what that might mean. So our reading this evening, as Judas just brought to us, is from Paul's letter to the church in Rome, from Romans. Uh, It might be helpful to have it to hand. I think it's page 157 in the New Testament part of your Bibles. It's just six verses to look at this evening. So, when we think about Paul, all of Paul's writings in the New Testament are in the form of a letter. They're a letter written to someone. Though we hear in Acts a bit about actually the words he spoke when he preached, or um, about actually what he did while he was during his ministry, everything we've got written down was a letter to somewhere else, so either to a church or to an individual. And sometimes you might get Paul, the pastor, who's writing to a church, a church that's struggling with some particular act, part of of, um, doctrine or behaviour. Sometimes you might be Paul the concerned friend writing to a more junior colleague in the church, a a more junior church leader. Or here you've got in Romans Paul the theologian. This is the hard hitting, big hitter. Um, He's setting out his spirit inspired understanding of the life of Jesus, his death and resurrection and the life of a believer who's now following that very same Jesus. So Romans, though it's got lettery bits at the beginning and the end, mostly it reads a bit like a a theology essay almost. Um, Though it would have probably been read out in one go to the church in Rome. I'm told it takes about an hour to read it out loud, so I hope you're all sitting comfortably. And uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Just be grateful you're not in first century Rome if you start getting a bit fidgety. I won't go on the whole hour. But one of the striking things about Romans is just how many Old Testament quotes Paul manages to get into it. In fact, the whole thing is a series of Old Testament quotes that he's strung together as he builds this this idea of the Christian life. He loves a good Old Testament quote. In fact, there's 63 in Romans altogether, and two of them we've got here in our, our short passage here. And he's using those to link what God did through the people of Israel in the Old Testament to what it means now in God's wider purposes for all of humanity because of the ministry, death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, Now anyone who's come to write an essay, or indeed I must put my hand up, give me a talk in church, sometimes you've got a point that you want to make and you think, what I could really do with you is something to back up this point that I want to make. Um, and you try and find some nice pithy quotation to sort of agree with what you say. And, and the danger, I want to sort of coin the phrase here, is a bit of a danger of fridge magnet theology. Uh, if I could have the next slide, please, Brian. So, um, at home, we love a good fridge magnet. In fact, we love them so much, we need two fridges just to fit them all on. Um, one of them, you can see down at, the, at the bottom, there's Katie, um, it's mostly decorated with photos of our children, nieces, nephews, godchildren, that sort of thing. And most of the photos are held on with moustache fridge magnets, which is, a, I have to say, it's a very good low-risk way of trying out facial hair, if you ever want to know if it's going to suit you or not. I think it suits you very well, Kate. Um, the thing about fridge magnets is they're quite a handy little thing you can see every day to give you a little a warm glow, a little bit of pithy wisdom. There's actually a selection up there, You can buy the whole set from Amazon, just £2.95 if you want to be inspired to be brave by your fridge every morning. So often those can be used as like a little uplifting go-to warming thing. And Bible verses can be a real source of, of that warm encouragement, a pithy way of giving you some encouragement. But there is a bit of a danger that we take them out of their context and put them straight on the fridge. Can I have the next slide, please? So, I've got a couple of examples of this. Um, You might be familiar with Philippians 4.13, a well-known verse. It reads this, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And the context is Paul talking about the fact that he can be content whether he's got lots or he hasn't got very much, whether he's well-fed or hungry. And the reason he can be so content is because god it's entirely down to God strengthening him. It's not really Paul at all. But if you just whip that out of its context, then it's brilliant, because you can get some muscle vests with it on, some workout gear, or here you've got a workout and fitness journal planner emblazoned with Paul's words. I'm ready for anything there, so take it out, stick it on it, and off you go. Perhaps the best fridge magnet verse, though, if we go to the next slide, uh, is Jeremiah 29. Now, it may well be you have this on your fridge at home or a mirror. I know I've certainly sent encouraging cards to other people with this verse on. I know the plans I have for you, declares the law. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And it is an amazing, it's an amazing promise of God. But the problem with it is that sometimes if we just take it out and put it on the fridge magnet, is it's out of its context. And it's tempting to think, well, actually God is speaking to me directly all the time through this verse. And if things don't turn out well, if and when bad things happen, do we feel betrayed by God? Because we've taken that out of its context. Now the real context for this in Jeremiah is there was a false prophet named Hananiah who said that actually everything's going to be fine for Israel. You're going to be very prosperous and it's all going to happen in the next two years. And Jeremiah wrote a letter to the elders in exile in Babylon saying you're in exile um, actually, yes, it will go all well with you. You will return. The people of Israel will return to the promised land. And actually, even more than just prosperity, you're going to have a, a rescuer who's going to come. But that's not happening for another 70 years. And in fact, everyone who's heard these words, probably none of them will actually still be alive by the time it comes to fruition. Uh, next slide, please. Right, that was something of a preamble. I'm afraid we will get on to Romans now. And don't worry, we're about halfway there. So back to Romans, so Paul starts off this evening's reading with a bit of a doxology, a hymn of praise to God. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. But of course, I hear you crying, what is the context? What's Paul talking about? Where have we got to this point? And our reading this evening is actually the culmination of about three chapters of Romans up to this point. And in some ways it's the whole hinge of the entire book that this bit here we've got it's right in the middle bit of it. So Paul's marveling at God's plan of salvation, not just for his chosen people, the Jews, but for everyone who's going to accept the salvation offered through Jesus. It doesn't matter who your parents are, it doesn't matter who your ancestors are, um, God's inviting you into his kingdom. And like a wild branch that's been picked up and grafted onto a cultivated olive tree, like this picture here. Um, The Gentiles are now able to share in God's kingdom would be part of his promises. And Paul then goes on to quote two Old Testament verses. Um, Dan, if you cast your eyes down there. There's one from Isaiah and one from the book of Job. And he's using these verses and the context they're in to make a really important point, and my first point as well, next slide please, Brian. That God is God, and we're his creatures. So Isaiah, the, the quote that Paul uses is from Isaiah 40. And Isaiah 40 starts off with that really famous bit from Handel's Messiah, comfort, oh comfort my people. But then it basically goes on to say um, just how big God is, how vast he is, how infinite he is and how small and finite and mortal we are in comparison. I'll read a bit of the bits around it. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or has his counsellors instructed him? Whom did he consult for his enlightenment? Who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Even the nations are a drop from a bucket, are accounted as just dust on the scales. So Paul's showing us that God is big; He's really big, and He's invited us into a rescue plan that's a really big one as well. And His mercy might not be what we expect; it may be not what we ourselves, or a timescale that we would recommend. But He's God, and we're His creatures. Similarly, Job had suffered. He'd lost everything he held dear in the world. However, he doesn't, as some people tell him to, he doesn't curse God to his face and die. Instead, he cries out to God, Lord, why? And God's answer isn't perhaps as we'd expect. It's well worth reading the last few chapters of Job. But it has delivered as a series of questions back to Job. Essentially say I'm God and you're a creator. The questions cover meteorology, physics, geology, biology, animal husbandry, just to name a few. Who has given a gift to me, asks God, that I should repay them? And Paul's picked this out now. shows that God's salvation plan is mysterious and bigger than us. He's the creator and we're his creatures. Our natural response, then, is to worship him. So he immediately goes on in chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Just grab some water. Next slide, please, Brian. So the correct response of a creature to his creator is worship them. And Paul describes it as offering up our bodies as living sacrifices. Just like in former times when the temple was still established and before then animals were sacrificed as an offering back to the Creator, offering back what was already God's. We're now called to offer up ourselves and all of ourselves to God, mind, body and soul. Not grudgingly, as if we can say, well this bit's mine and there's 10% that's for God. But actually acknowledging that, as we say in the communion service, everything in heaven on earth is yours, all things come from you, and of your own do we give you. Now, there is a danger that verse 1 of chapter 12 can be turned into a bit of a fridge magnet, fridge magnetization, I'm going to call it. Uh, Could I have the next slide, please? Um, A couple of examples of this. Now, I can't, in all honesty, recommend Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code, in any way. Um, Sorry, Dan. But Mr. Brown, essentially, he's got some bad history with the Catholic Church. I'm not sure what it is, but they have had a major falling out. Um, And within that, in the context, there's a character within the book who's a member of Opus Dei, a real organisation within the Catholic Church, but... Dan sort of predicted him as as a monk almost, who is wearing a salise. Now a salise would normally be like a horsehair shirt or made of sackcloth, a way to show of your penance. But in this case, Silas wears a metal band with barbs on it around his thigh to cut into his flesh, this mortification of the flesh. Um, As if somehow the body is evil and must be punished. This is my sacrifice. I'm going to injure myself or damage myself. A slightly more 21st century version of this, I'm looking at Rob now, is Strava. If, it didn't, if it's not on Strava, it didn't happen, essentially. And actually, what you really need to do to offer up your body as a living sacrifice is to go out and go harder. Be king of the mountain. Get there and offer up your body. The harder you're working out, the more you're offering yourself to God. And that, there may be something in that for some people. But there is a bit of a way in which we're perhaps missing what Paul is really saying to us. He says, Therefore present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship. Give God our all, as this is the resp- correct response to everything he's given us. Just as the Old Testament gave very specific instructions of which sort of animals and when to offer these sacrifices, it also said, Offer the best ones from your flock. It'd be tempting to go, Well, he's got, two heads and three legs so i might offer that one i'm going to keep the best animals for myself it might be tempting to offer up god the dregs what we've got left once we've had all the best bits but this sort of whole life worship is actually to offer ourselves up as living sacrifices we don't do that grudgingly with the bits left over but with everything our very best that we have to offer It's perhaps a reminder as well that our bodies are described elsewhere as temples of the Holy Spirit. So actually looking after our health, our physical health, and not abusing our bodies is a way of part of that whole life worship. Uh, Next slide please, Brian. Finally then, be transformed. So what's the effect of this whole life worship? Do not be conformed by this world, Paul says in verse 2, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so you may discern what the will of God is. Other translations have this, do not conform to the pattern of this world. And just like if you have a knitting pattern or a sewing pattern, the garment that's made is modelled on what the pattern is. That's what the the end product's going to look like. So if we conform to the pattern of this world our minds and our bodies and our lives will be in the shape of the world. They'll be worldly. But instead, Paul says, conform to heaven's pattern, a life of worship which sees our relationship to God and the rest of creation as it should be. And Rather than the world's pattern, perhaps of self-centeredness, of excess or acquisition, the worshipping life helps us to cling a little bit less tightly to the things of this world. Our minds can be renewed to see that the things we think of as ours are already actually God's to be given back to him. So a worshipping life of gratitude transforms the way we think about everything. How we spend our time, our money, our our gifts and talents, our effort and how we regard the rest of creation. And that's where our treasures and our hearts are to be found. Thank you very much.